Welcome to the New Legal Realism Podcast. The New Legal Realism Project promotes rigorous and genuinely interdisciplinary scholarship on law in action. Today's podcast is an interview with Deepa Das Acevedo, who is an assistant professor of law at the University of Alabama. Her research blends original ethnography, anthropological theory, and legal doctrine to study how law constructs, reflects, and challenges conceptions of personhood and freedom. Her articles have appeared in Law and Social Inquiry, and numerous law reviews and law journals, as well as in edited volumes by Oxford and Brill. She is on the editorial advisory boards of the Law and Society Review and Law and Social Inquiry. She is also active in the Law and Society Association, and she has chaired the AALS sections on Anthropology and Law and Employee Benefits and Executive Compensation and has served as secretary of the section on scholarship. She serves as a board member of the Association for Political and Legal Anthropology, as well as a labor seat on the Members Pragmatic Advisory and Advocacy Committee of the American Anthropological Association. She holds degrees in political science, law, and anthropology from Princeton University and the University of Chicago. On this podcast today, we talk about her research on law and politics of India, as well as her studies of employment regulation in the gig economy. We also chatted about how her work fits into the NLR movement. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, Maybe let's get started by having you describe your research for the listeners. Sure. So I am an anthropologist of law. And broadly speaking, my research examines questions like how personhood, freedom, and agency and related concepts are constituted through and sometimes despite the law. I have two broad areas of research interests. One is the work law space, and the other is constitutional law with a particular emphasis on India. My work law research to date has mostly focused on the gig economy, where I've largely considered uh, issues relating to worker classification and the conflicting notions of freedom that are built into our classification system. While my comparative and constitutional law research has to date mostly focused on religion-state relations and secular governance in India, with a particular emphasis on how to understand the state's heavy role in administering religious life. I'm kind of at the start of second research arcs in both my work law and my constitutional law uh, areas of research, but these have been the focus of my, of my research projects so far. And I've also got a third area of research and scholarly engagement, which is really about Uh, bringing anthropology and law into greater conversation with one another. So as part of this third area of scholarly activity, I have organized a series of traveling roundtables, a couple of special journal issues, a virtual special issue with Law and Society Review, and all of these activities have kind of been geared towards bringing anthropologists who are focused on law especially those who are dual trained like myself into greater conversation with one another. That's a good segue into my next question, which is, can you describe your methodological approach? 
for the most part, my research is classically anthropological in nature. Um, I do a lot of participant observation. I do semi-structured interviews. And because of where I was trained at the University of Chicago, I also engage a lot with historical sources. I, in my work law and gig work research, for instance, I worked as a dog sitter through the pet sitting platform Rover. I hung out a lot in airport parking lots so that I could talk to Uber and Lyft drivers, engaged in a lot of Uber and Lyft rides so that I could talk to drivers. Uh, And I did the interviewing and onboarding required to become a personal shopper on Instacart. So I did a lot of things that would qualify as fairly conventional ethnographic research. In my India constitutional law body of work, I attended and observed the proceedings of a specialized temple bench at the Kerala High Court. I did a lot of interviews of lawyers, judges, litigants, priests, members of devotional associations. And I also did some archival research at the Kerala uh, State Archives. In both of these areas of work, I've also read and incorporated a lot of case law and statutory law, as well as both legal and social science scholarship. Given this very integrated approach that you have, you might be a really great person to comment on some of the challenges facing scholars who want to integrate law and social science. Can you talk a bit about that? With regards to the challenges facing scholars who want to integrate law and social science, I think I would point to the basic issues that a lot of people who are similarly interested in integrating law and social science have also pointed to. So, for example, the uh, issue of production speed when it comes to publication and production timeline. You know, as far as speed is concerned, there's no getting away from doing the basic empirical research that a lot of us are involved in. And if you do field work, it is particularly likely to take you a long time before you can get to the point where you start analyzing data and producing written um, written products at the end mm-hmm. of it. Because of that necessity, often your publication timeline follows a feast and famine pattern rather than a steady supply. You know, you have a long period where you're building, 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 and then you have a spurt of articles or books or both rather than steadily producing an article once or twice a year, right? There are also issues associated with publication venue. You know, if you're housed in a law school the way that I am, then you pretty much are assured that you need to publish in law reviews at least some of the times for tenure and promotion purposes. But that can be hard if you're also committed to incorporating your social science research and insights into all of your publications because of the way law reviews are structured and the kinds of topics uh, and insights that they tend to be interested in. Mm -hmm. There's also the question of kind of Do you commit to publishing articles since law is largely an article-based field, or are you also interested in publishing books, which are increasingly becoming common in legal academia, but are still nowhere as central um, or as uh, necessary kind of as coin of the realm as they are in social science, right? And then I think the last couple of things I would point to are research funding and research logistics. I don't think either of these are peculiar to 
law and social science folks, but I think that they are exacerbated for mm -hmm. people who are interdisciplinary in this sense. So, you know, research is not free, even ethnographic research, which is probably cheaper in many ways than quantitative uh, empirical research that relies on purchased data sets, is still not free. Mm -hmm. um, fortunately, law schools often provide faculty with a little bit more in the way of research support, but that almost always is not enough to fully fund the kind of work that interdisciplinary people do. And I think as far as research logistics are concerned, you know, research takes time, especially again, if like me, you're doing field work where you need to spend extended periods of time in a field site before you even have data that you can begin to analyze and then refine and, you know, put together into articles or books. And although getting the time to do field work is a problem that even anthropologists in anthropology departments face, everyone tells you you'll never have as much time to do field work or writing as you do when you're in grad school. And that's absolutely true, regardless of where you're housed. Mm -hmm. I think that there's naturally less uh, inherent understanding of that tension and of that need in a law school environment where everyone isn't necessarily facing the same research logistics concerns. In one of your articles, you had said that anthropology has some distinct contributions to offer legal scholarship. I wonder if you can discuss that a bit. I think what I've increasingly been interested in communicating is not that anthropology has better or more insights to offer legal analysis and legal scholarship, but that it has significant insights to offer and that I think both anthropologists and legal scholars may be underestimating those, those contributions. Mm -hmm. um, in keeping with other qualitatively oriented social sciences, anthropology can do a lot of the work in explaining why and how things happen as they do rather than simply what, which is often something that requires generalization that you know, ethnographic fieldwork is not suited to, to providing. Um, I think also anthropology, and this is something that I've discovered in particular with my gig economy research, anthropological research methods like participant observation and interviews are really good at providing initial insights into black box areas of legal activity. So mm -hmm. when the gig economy first really started surfacing on everyone's kind of radar in the mid 2010s, I would say, there was really no way to get any factual information about what was going on. Who were the people doing this kind of work? What kind of work were they doing? What did their work rhythms and patterns look like, right? Um, and that was because in part, the data regarding all of these things, which you can be sure was being collected by the platforms through which gig workers were doing their work, uh, that data was extremely valuable and proprietary and difficult to extract through other already existing mechanisms like 
the information collected by the Bureau of Labor Statistics or other research ventures uh, that the Department of Labor engages in or the National Bureau of Economic Research. A lot of these sources that we traditionally look to and that produce quantitative, statistically oriented data just didn't have access to anything that was going on in the geek economy. And so the first bits of insight that we started to get actually first were from investigative journalists and soon after that were from qualitatively oriented law and social science people who went and actually talked to gig workers, did gig work, observed gig work being done and could report back and say, these are some of the things I'm seeing. There are further questions for future research. On the topic of theoretical debates, can you talk about some of the debates that your research engages? It's easier to talk about this in two parts because the two tracks of my research are so different. Um, in my work law scholarship, so far with respect to the research I've done on the gig economy, one of the things that I've been particularly interested in examining is what are the ways that technology actually changes the stakes of work regulation? You know, how new is gig work really? Because these are, this is a question that um, creates a kind of domino effect for the way we think about policy responses that are required about um, the severity of power imbalances that we might be observing how different are these things and what does the introduction of technology into the work relationship in the way that the gig economy reflects actually mean for how we should think about work regulation? And I think more broadly, I'm very interested in how work law reflects and reshapes notions of freedom at work. Um, we talk a lot about how gig work is, or at least we used to talk about uh, how gig work um, allowed workers immense autonomy and freedom and mm -hmm. uh, the ability to craft their own lives in ways that were not possible in the conventional labor force. We don't really do that so much anymore. But I think there are a lot of uh, fundamental questions about what we think it means to have freedom at work that have been interesting for me with respect to the gig economy and are also things that I'm considering moving forward in my work law research in other areas. Mm -hmm. With my Indian research, you know, I started out by asking kind of what are the key features of secular governance? Do they obtain in India? How do we think about secularism in India, which is a part of the uh, Indian constitution. Um, it was added in the 1970s. Given that the same document and the legal system and regulatory systems that are kind of, um, that grow out of it and are responsive to it are also heavily involved in administering and managing everyday religious life the content of religious belief and practice, the way that religious institutions like Hindu temples are run. How do we make sense of these kind of conflicting notions? Uh, and in particular, how do we kind of reconcile conflicting notions of religion state relations that are not only evident on the ground in the way that uh, litigants and 
other parties to disputes involving religious life um, and judges and lawyers kind of handle these concerns. But in the law itself, in statutory law and constitutional law and the case law that grows out of each of these things, you know. So I think broadly, both of these sets of research projects are intervening in debates over concepts that are kind of stuck in ruts. With work law, with the gig economy research, I had paid a lot of attention to how work law scholars and a lot of lawyers and you know judges for that matter have spent considerable energy explaining why control-based analysis as a foundation for worker classification is bad. Either it's unhelpful in providing guidance to courts, it's unfair or unjust in the level of benefits and protections it offers workers, um, it is out of sync with current uh, industry dynamics, and yet despite all of this badness in control-based analysis, we can't seem to move beyond it. We've spent decades and lots of trees and lots of energy arguing that control-based analysis, sorting workers into these buckets um, for the purposes of assigning them benefits and privileges on the basis of how much they are controlled by their employers, that this isn't working and that it's a bad thing. We've developed alternate tests and regulatory regimes to try and move away from control-based analysis, but we never really seem to be able to do that. And so it's still a problem, you know, frankly, almost a hundred years later that work law scholarship uh, is committed to critiquing. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I've always been interested in is why can't we seem to move beyond it? Why is this kind of control based analysis, both so obviously faulty and so conceptually sticky. Because mm -hmm. if something is that problematic, you would think after so many efforts to move away from it, we would have some success in moving away from it. That definitely does not seem to be the case, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. With my India research, I think there's a similar interest in intervening in a debate that appears to be stuck in a rut. And the debate in the Indian context, uh, at least with my research so far, has been essentially, is India secular? What does secularism mean such that we can decide, we can ascribe kind of or characterize Indian approaches to religion state relations? There was a huge uh, kind of conversation that went on in the mid to late 20th century over this question um, and a lot of effort to redefine or provide an alternative understanding of what secular governance means by saying that in the Indian context, secularism doesn't mean what we normally think of it as meaning in the American context, which is say separation of church and state, right? Hmm. Um, or that it doesn't mean what we think of in the French context, laicite. Instead, there was a push to say that secularism in India or Indian secularism has its own particular meaning. Um, and there are various definitions that have come out of this. So that's one of the debates that I'm interested in intervening in 
with my India work, but I'm also more broadly interested in asking, how do we make sense of conflicting approaches to religion state relations that we can see in the words of the constitution itself, let alone in the, the statutory law that has grown out of that constitutional framework, let alone in the way disputes are articulated and imagined and resolved on the ground. How do we make sense of the idea that on the one hand, the Indian constitution describes India as a secular state, and on the other hand, the Indian state, usually at the regional level, um, is heavily involved in actually running religious institutions, in defining the contours of acceptable religious belief. How do we kind of make sense of these two things? The debate that has arisen in response to this kind of phenomenon has either tended to say India is secular, and that's because secularism means something particular in the Indian context, or India isn't secular because clearly secularism means X and India does not reflect X. And I've been interested in kind of stepping in and saying, well, maybe there's another way we can think about this. Do you have any thoughts on how to best translate your research, whether that's the India research or the gig economy research or both, um, to policy changes? So I think that in both of my areas of research, what I'm doing is asking uh, legal actors, even the, the public, to be mindful of conflicting and almost equally valid impulses that are animating the kinds of law on the ground uh, circumstances that we're seeing. And I am interested in offering suggestions as to how we can be mindful of those dueling impulses. So in the Indian context, you know, um, a lot of my research has focused on one particular temple, the Shabrimala temple in Kerala. And uh, this temple has been at the center of a longstanding dispute over its practice of excluding women between the ages of 10 and 50 from its grounds on the logic that doing so is ritually impermissible and offends the presiding deity of the temple. There's been a lot of litigation over this and uh, the temple itself was at the core of my fieldwork on this, in this area. But one of the things that I've been at pains to kind of show and that I think has had pretty direct application to broader policy concerns is how both understandings of religion state relations in India that have emerged through the debate over women's access to Shabrimala have grounding in the constitution, in law, in the traditions and practices that have obtained in India over the last 70 years, you know, mm -hmm. um, and that why maintaining flexibility and scope for disagreement in instances where religious autonomy clashes with individual autonomy is kind of central to the constitutional framework of India. It's especially important. And I call this um, the, the phenomenon of dueling impulses or uh, dueling approaches to 
not only religion state relations, but kind of citizen state relations in India, dynamic equilibrium. And one of my arguments has been to say that dynamic equilibrium is an intentional and, and valuable feature of Indian constitutionalism writ large. That argument has broader implications for a huge area of religious freedom jurisprudence in India that's called essential practices jurisprudence. And it grows out of particular elements of the, the constitution that says, you know, um, essentially that practices that are essential to religious life, to religious communities are granted special constitutional protections. Um, with my scholarship on work law and in particular the gig economy, I think that the, the kinds of insights that I'm trying to provide regarding the mechanics and the, um, the, the driving forces behind gig work show that there are reasons why we find control-based analysis in worker classification law so difficult to leave behind even if those same on-the-ground realities make clear that we have good reason for thinking that control-based analysis has become too restrictive in its conferral of benefits and protections. Um, and so maybe the, the policy takeaway from this is to say that we're at a conceptual impasse with the particular doctrinal tests we use to classify workers. And what we need to do is separate the very idea of worker classification from all of the benefits and privileges that we have traditionally funneled through it, you know. But um, this has been part of, I think, a larger project undertaken by many work law scholars to say that the troubles arising from worker classification doctrine are such that we need to rethink the basis of work-related uh, protections altogether in this country. And I'm contributing to that, that overall conversation. Maybe we can shift to talking about new legal realism more specifically. Um, how did you get involved in the NLR movement and how does your research connect to it? So I actually only really... Uh, learned of NLR in the last couple of years. And it was a wonderful, fortuitous circumstance kind of that came up through the law and anthropology conversations I've been facilitating, in particular, through my uh, interactions with Beth Mertz and Riaz Tajani, who have both really introduced me to the universe of NLR scholarship and activity that's been wonderful. Um, I'm so glad that they did this because I think that NLR reflects a lot of the same values and interests that have animated my work. And now this gives me a vocabulary and a community for those ideas. You know, I think that um, there's a, a shared that is between what I've been trying to do and what I've come to understand and appreciate about NLR, there's a commitment, obviously, to interdisciplinary modes of legal research, but especially maybe qualitative empirical modes of interdisciplinary legal research, which 
is generally not that widespread in the broader legal academy. And as somebody who is, again, housed in a law school rather than in a social science department, that shared vocabulary and uh, theoretical framing and, frankly, community is incredibly valuable. I think also what I've come to greatly appreciate about NLR is its commitment to theory-driven analysis. You know, my own research projects have always begun with concepts, with control, with secularism, with freedom, with agency and citizenship. These are the kinds of things that I see in a lot of NLR research as well, which is beginning with theoretical questions and then thinking about how best to answer them. Which leads into my last point, I think that NLR, um, one of the things that I've, I've really come to appreciate about NLR and that I think I've always tried to embody in my own research work is a kind of methodological and, for lack of a better term, disciplinary or perspectival omnivorousness, you know, um, we're not limiting ourselves to particular modes of research, to particular theoretical frameworks. We are interested in questions, in analysis, and whatever is going to help us get to that point, whether it's interviews or whether it's participant observation or whether it's quantitative analysis, you know, whether it's survey work or content analysis, that's great. We're willing to take it on. And I, I really appreciated the kind of uh, permission to be methodologically omnivorous in that way that I think NLR gives me. I like that term, methodologically omnivorous. Um, last question, uh, how does your research or this approach inform how you teach your law classes? I think the interdisciplinarity that characterizes my own research and that is, you know, the the great contribution of, of NLR as a movement is something that comes through in my classroom efforts as I try to show that laws reflect historical contingencies and power dynamics and non-neutral values. None of this is necessarily good or bad. They just are often. Um, but that instead of thinking of law as a sui generis, naturally occurring, self-evident uh, body of principles or values, we should recognize that these rules and these values come from particular places and moments in time and people. And so often what I end up doing is providing historical context for something that students may take for granted in the hopes of troubling that assumption that they know what this rule is about or what this practice is about and we can just move on with our day. Another thing that I do more so in my substantive courses like employment law or uh, I sometimes teach a seminar on gig work is to directly incorporate social science research into the readings because a lot of the information that we get about the work dynamics that we're discussing and that we need to understand if we're going to be able to 
think about particular cases or rules or statutes comes from social science. It doesn't come from legal scholarship. Um, it certainly doesn't come from the law itself, right? And mm -hmm. so I often assign sections of social science articles. I assign media pieces because particularly with the gig economy, journalism has been an important source of factual information. Um, and I also try to get students to go out into the world and read some of these other sources um, in, in the sense of getting them to engage with current debates over, say, the classification of gig workers or the provision of minimum wage guarantees to gig workers, um, because these are not simply issues that exist in static form in case law and statutory law. They're live issues in a way that is very understandable to, I think, social science scholars and students, but often needs to be intentionally brought back into the law school classroom. Thank you so much for your time. This was really fascinating. Great. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I'd like to thank Francis Tung and the many researchers who are collaborating on this new legal realism project and for working to make this podcast happen. Visit NLR at www.newlegalrealism.org or on the blog at newlegalrealism.wordpress.com where new legal realists post on everything from law to the latest in jazz. You can also email us at newlegalrealism at gmail.com. This is the New Legal Realism Project podcast. Thanks for listening.